queer life in Montreal was wild. Montreal in the 90s was a great time, but it had a dark side. It was not a safe city for gay people back then. But what else was behind a series of deaths in the city? Somebody's killing gay men. We want to know why. I'm Francis Plourde, and this is The Village, The Montreal Murders. Get early access to episodes at cbc.ca slash listen or by subscribing to the CBC True Crime Premium channel on Apple Podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Brian Goldman. Welcome to The Dose. We're back after a short break and not a moment too soon. Your questions about COVID-19 and other health issues have been landing in our inbox each and every day and this week as we all step tentatively into fall and the return of school we're going to tackle the subject of math covid math to be specific the number of new covid cases has been going up fairly steeply in several provinces including ontario quebec bc and alberta health officials say they're worried by these numbers but why plus we hear other terms being thrown around like the reproduction number what do all these numbers really mean and what are we supposed to do about them So on today's episode of The Dose, we're going to show you the numbers through the eyes of the experts so you can see what they see. In short, we're going to answer the question, what does all this COVID math mean and how is it going to affect my life this fall? To help us do that, we're joined by Dr. David Fisman from the Dalalana School of Public Health at the University of Toronto. He's an epidemiologist who, while being very modest, understands COVID math better than almost anyone else I know in this country. Hi, Dr. Fisman. Welcome to The Dose. Hi, thanks for having me on. Let's start with the COVID-19 case numbers we've been seeing and hearing in news reports. We know they differ across the country, but we are seeing increases in the highest population provinces. And we don't want to talk specific numbers because they're changing uh, on a daily basis. What I do want to know is what those increases mean to you. So when we look at numbers each morning as we do, what we're looking at is, is the growth rate, that's the rate of change of those numbers in a given place, but the absolute number is important too. If you think about that, if we have a, a process where the reproduction number, each old case is making uh, some number of new cases before it gets better, let's say that reproduction number is three. That means that one case this week is going to result in three new cases next week. Um, because uh, COVID has a, has a generation time of about a week. So uh, we, we, we sort of see COVID, COVID generations in these, these one-week uh, uh, time steps. We see COVID growing in one-week time steps. So we start with one case. That becomes three cases. Those become nine cases. Those become 27 cases. That's, that's, that's fairly alarming. I mean, a reproduction number of three, even starting with just a single case, is a big deal. But imagine we started with 100 cases. Now we're going to go 100 cases, 300 cases, 900 cases, 2,700 cases. So where you start off from is really important in terms of the absolute amount of disease that gets created by a given reproduction number. And it's particularly important now, sort of towards the end of the summer, because the reproduction numbers are just a smidge above one. Um, so, you know, for about the last month, Canada has been sitting around just above one, between 1.1 and 1.3. That means each old case is making one, one case and change on average 
before it gets better. You obviously can't have partially infected humans, but on average, if you divide the new cases by the old cases that led to them, you'd get a ratio of you know somewhere between 1.1 and 1.3. Now, if you have a reproduction number above one, and you, you just let that run on and don't do anything about it, that will become a big number eventually just through the magic of exponential growth. Epidemics are scary for the same reason, you know, high interest savings accounts are nice. Basically, growth with compounded interest. Uh, so so uh, a reproduction number of 1.2 or 1.3 doesn't sound that impressive. But 1.2 or 1.3, you could think about it, if that were a savings account, your principal was growing, you know, the 30% a week compounded, you'd, you, you'd get rich pretty fast. And um, in epidemic terms, the same thing happens if you let these things run on. Uh, uh, 30% week-on-week growth in the number of incident cases can become quite alarming. And so right now what we have is we have a reproduction number that's a function of, you know, the properties of the virus in terms of how infective it is, but also things we do. So, you know, as a friend, as a friend of mine was saying, you know, in March it was all about vir- virus behavior, and now it's all about human behavior. It's not quite that simple, but it's a nice way to think about it. We're influencing virus transmission a lot more now. So when we see those reproduction numbers go up and down, what those tell us is that's probably most sensitive not to the biology of the virus, which doesn't change that much, but to what we do as humans, and mostly what we do as humans to drive that reproduction number up, is we interact with each other in larger and larger numbers. And that's at least part of the story on why we're seeing epidemic growth in in much of Canada right now. But I would also note the quiet places are important too. There's a story there as well. So when you look at the north and see nothing going on, you look at the Atlantic and see nothing going on. That's not an accident. That's a result of very hard work, uh, eliminating COVID in those places and keeping it out. And to be clear, so a few, you know, in the early part of the summer, the reproduction number was less than one, which means that we were not generating, you know, we weren't having week over week increases in, in, in the number of cases. Now it's it's 1.3. How do we get that number back down? Right. So, so, so we have some policy levers that are available to us and some policy levers that we probably don't want to touch. And I'm going to put this out there. I'm going to say that I'm, I'm, a, I'm a parent and I'm a supporter of public education in Ontario. So a policy lever that I would rather leave until later would be, um, would be shutting schools back down. But we do know that historically there is an association between school opening and pandemic resurgence. And that's actually really well documented in the H1N1 pandemic in 2009. There's some pretty fantastic data collected in Alberta that that documented that. But we don't want to do that because school closure is economically very impactful. So we have to use other levers. What do we know about this virus? Well, we know it likes closed, close and crowded spaces. We know it loves restaurants. Uh, It's a little bit of a gourmand. It likes to go to restaurants. And and we've seen that the CDC actually was looking at um, high risk settings in their data last week. And restaurants really jump out as a place where the virus gets transmitted, which makes sense. You're sitting relatively close to people. You're doing a lot of stuff that involves your mouth. 
you're usually talking to the person across the table from you. Uh, you're interacting with a stranger who's going back and forth and touching your food. Um, so there's, there's um, you know, there are a lot of reasons why we, we, we can't really mask and eat at the same time. There are a lot of reasons to think that, that indoor restaurants might be helping to drive this. Bars, karaoke bars have been prominent with super spreader events. So to me, as someone who wants schools to stay open as long as they can, I'd rather close those things down and where you can, you know, support patios, move them outside, which seems to be much, much lower risk. Um, and, and so so kind of offset that way. Um, there are a couple of economists have talked about how we, we really, in as much as the reproduction number is proportionate to the number of contacts we have, we can almost think of it as having an interaction budget where we have a certain number of contacts that we can spend and we have to decide how we're going to spend those without going over budget. So I think there, there's been some grumbling from our provincial government about whether they're maybe going to lower the max on indoor gathering sizes. You probably have to get those pretty low, probably down to around 10 to meaningfully impact contact rates, meaningfully impact R. Let's see if they do that. You also have to actually enforce that so that people don't uh, don't say, well, you, you know, the guidance is that we shouldn't gather, but let's just have a party no one's ever going to know. That's a policy lever that's available to them. Uh, there's uh, basically moving back a phase to phase two, really trying to shut down some of the closed, close and crowded stuff that we don't need as an economy and as a society to function, stuff that's nice to have but not need to have. And the reason to close stuff proactively is so that you avoid a more widespread closure later on, you know, in a month or so when the ICUs are starting to really fill up and we're starting to have a lot of deaths. And then people say, oh, my, now we're going to close everything and lock society down. Well, that's going to be a very expensive proposition, probably much more efficient to lock down more surgically, proactively avoid that pain, you're going to have the lockdown anyway, but now you're going to be locking down much more in a much more widespread manner so that both the health and the economic damage are going to be far greater. But of course, that takes political will and we'll see, we'll see if, if, if that political will and sort of foresight come to bear here in Ontario. Assuming that, that, that reopening schools was, is, and remains a priority, and I think it, it, it is, how do we do that safely, uh, you know, in terms of what's being done in Canada and perhaps what's been done in other countries that's been successful? And, and I, think, I think that's exactly the right way to frame it. When we look at a place like Denmark, when we look at a place like Germany that's done relatively well, Germany's had a fair number of school-associated cases. They seem to be community cases that are getting picked up in schools. How are they doing that? Well, they're doing testing on site at schools. How, how would we do that? Well, we don't want to do nasopharyngeal swabs. Those are, I, I describe nasopharyngeal swabs. I mean, you're, you, you work in the ER, so you do nasopharyngeal swabs on people. And I describe them to people as a nasopharyngeal swab is like taking, um, taking a pickup stick and sticking it into your nose into the place where the milk goes through when you laugh. <laughs> <laughs> it's, we don't want to be doing lots of NP swabs on small children at school. So how do we test them? And that's where innovation has come along in terms of things like nose-throat swabs, things like saliva testing, um, things like pooling testing. Because really, when you're testing in a school context, what you want is is you're looking for an all clear 
you're looking for no signal, you're looking for absence of COVID in that school, and then and then you say all clear. We'll, you know, we'll see you again in a few days or, or next week, and we'll check again. But for now, there's no problem here, so carry on. And I think um, we have a public health system that's had a really hard time shifting gears away from a diagnostic paradigm with that sort of testing towards sort of a surveillance and monitoring paradigm, which is what that is or should be. So that everybody's clear on this, is, 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 is up to speed on what, what you and I are talking about. If you've got all the kids, instead of doing the nasopharyngeal swabs, everybody spits into a bucket, you test the bucket? Uh- yeah, ideally, and that's yeah, and I I know the the lab concerns that you know if you get enough spit in that bucket, you lose the ability to detect small amounts of COVID, and that that's fair enough. And there, you know, that's that's probably a more t- technical conversation, but the basic idea is sound and is being used in other places. It's like carrying the canary down into the coal mine. You know, you, you want to know if the canary falls off its perch, you know there's trouble ahead. So whether you do this through nose-throat swabs, whether you do it with some kids or all kids, whether you do it um, with spit, whether you do it with going into the school's septic system and monitoring for COVID RNA in the school septic system, all of those are possible approaches you could take to this. But the idea is you're looking for trouble. You're you're looking for the canary to fall off its perch, and then you can say, okay, we you know we we may we may have an issue here. Let's now test in a more traditional way to find out what the source of our problem is. Or we just say, okay, school's out for this week. We'll all be back next week. And the idea is that by maintaining situa- situational awareness, you can continue to educate kids and teachers safely because you know there's not an issue there. And I, I probably shouldn't have mentioned testing first because, of course, closed, close, and crowded, you know, it's it's a virus that loves its three C's and there's a fourth C, which is continuous, and there may even be a fifth C, which is cold. It seems to be a, a cold-loving virus, it seems, which may explain meatpacking plants. But those first four C's, closed, close, crowded, and continuous, are a pretty good description of schools. So a big missed opportunity for us here in Ontario is, of course, class sizes, where um, if, if, if our province was really, really serious about keeping kids and teachers safe and keeping communities safe, right? Because th- this isn't a disease that uh, tends to make kids extremely sick, although it can. And this is more a disease that tends to make adults extremely sick. And what we're worried about with schools is this being amplified in schools and then hitting our communities around the schools. Um, the best way to have controlled that and, you know, to have learned from countries that have done this right would have been to limit class sizes, which we've not done in Ontario. And so so I, th- I think that's going to come back and bite us. That would have been the easiest, most efficient way to open schools, but also keep contact numbers low. And, you know, ideally, and I think if this stays with us long enough without a vaccine, ideally, we want to really give a good think to how we ventilate our indoor spaces. Uh, and make healthier indoor environments through use of more aggressive uh, air exchange, because that seems to be really important for limiting COVID spread too. Um, but but you can't do that on a dime. We can't take you know fifty year old schools and suddenly you know suddenly revamp their ventilation system with kids already on site. And uh, so is it too late? What can we do now? 
Well, I don't think it's too late to reduce those class sizes, and it's not too late for creativity around outdoor education. Our, our falls tend to be mild, September or October, and that would be a great option that sort of sidesteps the whole ventilation in schools issue. Take it outside. Kids can learn in different ways and in different settings. It doesn't all have to be in, a, in an old school building, and that would have kept the kids and their teachers safer, but also, as I say, just keep coming back to this, would have kept the wider community safer. And I don't think it's too late for that. Hi, I'm Michelle Shepard, host of Uncover Charmini from CBC Podcasts. In 1999, 15-year-old Charmini Anandeville disappeared on her way to a job that police believed didn't exist. Four months later, her remains were found in a wooded ravine. I revisit the case that has stayed with me for over 20 years. Ever since I first covered it, as a cub crime reporter for the Toronto Star. You can find Uncover Charmini on CBC Listen or on your favourite podcast app. People uh, often talk about a second wave of this virus, and I wanted to ask, is that a term you use? Well, you know, you describe the waves sort of post hoc when you look at... uh at an epidemiology or an infectious disease textbook because they look like waves in the sea. You know, they go up, they have a peak, and they come down. I think I think uh, when we have our second wave, if we have our second wave, we won't have to, you know, be asking each other, is this the second wave now? Are we in it? Are we not in it? I think we'll, we'll know just as we knew in the first wave, we were in the first wave. What creates that, just to circle back to where we started, what creates that wave appearance is the reproduction number and exponential growth. So that kind of bell-shaped epidemic curve, of which, for example, there were about four of those in 1918 over a two-year period, um, the, the upward slope of that curve is where the reproduction number is greater than one. The peak is where it hits one, so the number of new cases is neither rising nor falling. And then the downward slope on the other side is where it's uh, less than one. So, you know, based on history, based on what's happening with reproduction numbers, based on what's happening with with mixing patterns and contact numbers, which are being reflected in the reproduction numbers, uh, based on the likelihood that this probably is a highly seasonal pathogen, coronaviruses are usually wintertime bugs. I think there are many reasons to expect that as the weather turns, we will see wave two, which um, in both 1918 and 2009, the big wave is the first autumn wave. Uh, so the, 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 the spring-summer wave is what's called a herald wave that announces that the big wave is coming. The big wave typically comes in October, November. Again, that's why epidemiologists like yours truly have been saying, do you maybe want to be a little bit more careful with some of the school and university stuff because you're going to be pouring gasoline on the fire right at the time this is going to be surging. What do you think the next surge will look like? I, th- I, I think it's going to look like what Melbourne's just gone through, or possibly worse, because I think the Australians are better at this than we are. Melbourne, um, of course, instituted a lockdown, a curfew. Yes, yes. No, and I think, you know, I think it'll get to that. I think even if political leaders don't currently think they will do that, they will do that if the ICUs are full. And you have horrific images on people's TV screens and you have people losing relatives. And, and, you know, and that's the paradox is that when you do this well, right, when you implement public health policy based on what we know about this disease, and there's a lot we know about, at, about, about COVID at this point, and then very little happens as a result of your actions, you get this sort of clownish response, including from some in the media, 
which is, oh, you know, we did all this stuff and then nothing happened. Well, we did all that stuff to make nothing happen. You know, you're welcome. (laughs) Nothing did happen because of what we did. What's the take-home message in the math for our listeners? What should we do now, not only to keep ourselves safe, but to bring those numbers down to avoid uh, another virtual lockdown situation? I think for all of us, the message is this hasn't gone away, that we, we all have that impulse to get back to normal life. I, I mean, I have it too. We all, we all miss those, those typical normal interactions. They will come back. This is not, this is not forever. But we are heading into a very risky time of year when historically second waves have surged. Um, And this is a high mortality virus. It is on the order of magnitude of the 1918 flu in terms of what fraction of infected people die. It's almost 1%. It's very, very high. And exponential growth is a mighty thing. It's being already probably spurred by our need to move back indoors in the in the colder months, you know, it becomes very hard to very much harder to do a lot outdoors as it gets a lot colder in Canada. So we're going to get pushed indoors. So that's one of our C's, you know, closed, close and crowded. We're already back into closed spaces as the weather changes. And so it's very important to to keep the crowding down, keep the contact numbers down, because those feed that reproduction number and that reproduction number, once it's above one, translates into exponential growth. And exponential growth is a mighty thing. Um, You know, it means that case numbers grow and grow and grow and they grow faster and faster and faster. And that can can lead to, you know, the sorts of really destructive things that have happened in other cities and that we've ducked in Canada so far and that we hope to continue to duck. Uh, So I would tell people, you know, take, take a deep breath, look after yourself, look after those close to you, look after your loved ones. Thank goodness we have the ability to communicate with each other virtually, which they didn't have in 1918. And as a friend of mine says, you know, you may be, you may be done with the virus, but the virus isn't done with, with you, it isn't done with us. So just uh, remain aware that this is, uh, we have some choppy waters ahead. The fall wave of uh, pandemic that emerges out of season with a wintertime respiratory pathogen is typically the bad one. And so that takes us through the next few months. October, November, December is probably going to be the worst of it. And uh, we need to do whatever's in our power to, to mitigate that and to, to keep ourselves safe and keep our loved ones safe. Thank you, David Fisman, for explaining the math and uh, the implications. Sure, you're welcome. Bye-bye now. Bye. That was Dr. David Fisman, an epidemiologist at the Dalalana School of Public Health at the University of Toronto. And here's your dose of smart advice. COVID math is important because it shows us whether the pandemic is moving in the right or wrong direction. Looking at the number of cases on a given day is mostly useful if you pay attention to whether the number is rising or falling. Once the numbers start to rise, you want to bring them back down. The other important number to watch is the reproduction number. Anytime that number is greater than one, it means that we can expect the number of cases to rise each week until we take measures to reverse the trend. Unfortunately, as we speak, except for Atlantic Canada, in most of the rest of the country, the reproduction number is 1.2 or 1.3, which means we should expect rising numbers of cases. Reopening schools is likely to make that trend continue. The absolute number of new cases of COVID-19 on any given day gives you a glimpse into the past. It tells you who got infected two weeks ago. 
If the number is trending up, you can bet that the situation will get worse before it gets better. As Dr. Fisman explained, the math shows us that COVID-19 is still here. And pandemic history tells us the fall and winter will make it worse if we don't stay strong. The good news is that each of us can do something about those numbers. If we're vigilant as we were last spring, with physical distancing, hand washing and wearing masks, we can flatten the curve again and stop disastrous consequences for our loved ones who are elderly or otherwise especially vulnerable. If you have topics you'd like to hear on The Dose or questions you'd like answered, email us at thedose at cbc.ca. You can also tweet me at NightShiftMD or at CBCWhiteCoat using the hashtag TheDoseCBC. You can find The Dose and White Coat Black Art wherever you get your podcasts. Please do us a solid and rate our shows so more people can find us. This episode of The Dose was produced by Nicole Ireland, Donna Dingwall, and me with digital support from Fabiola Carletti. Thanks to our studio technician, Stefano Prischko. The Dose wants you to be better informed about your health. But if you're looking for medical advice, see your healthcare provider. I'm Dr. Brian Goldman. Until your next dose. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.